Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored, the podcast that rates dirty books and encourages dirty-minded reading. I'm Aoife Vrithnach a historian with a dangerously distracting book habit. You can follow me on Twitter at CensoredPod for extra censorship stuff, such as saucy book covers and rants about book covers. This episode returns to Irish literature again, with J.P. Dunleavy's The Ginger Man. It was published in 1955 and banned straight away in 1956. The ban on The Ginger Man ended in 1968 but the censors foiled eager readers once again, re-banning it the next year. So from 1956 to at least 1981, it was illegal to sell, distribute or possess a copy of this book. The Ginger Man, so filthy they banned it twice. It was also banned in America for three years and Australia for a decade. Once again, the Irish were more censorious than anyone else. A 25-year ban was pretty extreme, especially when you consider changes in attitudes to sex in the 70s. But the story of the Ginger Man text and censorship is much bigger than this. This book was so dirty that British publishing houses deleted whole chapters to avoid controversy. A stage adaptation of the book in 1959 attracted the ire of John Charles McQuaid, the Archbishop of Dublin. McQuaid is the poster boy for modern Irish ecclesiastical tyranny. I'm so happy we get to explore his role in the surveillance of art and culture. There is a lot of censorship baggage attached to this book, and I needed an expert to navigate it. Luckily, Dr Barry Houlihan, archivist and lecturer from NUI Galway, knows lots about the ginger man, and he shared his insights with me. Now, I did need a beverage to get through this book, Whiskey is the drink of the titular ginger man, a character called Sebastian Balf Dangerfield. Whether in the pub or at the kitchen table, he's forever drinking whiskey. And eating sausages, a fry-up is the quintessential meal of the book. Naturally, there's lots of tea drunk. It is set in Dublin in the 1950s, after all. And you can't have a fry or a slice of toast without tea. It would be a sin. There is a brilliant line that captures the perfect cup of tea. Quote, And the tea was so good that I'd giggle with the impossible joy of it. Unquote. So brew a cuppa or pour a measure of whiskey and settle down for yards of smut. 
The Ginger Man follows the exploits of Sebastian Dangerfield, an American studying in TCD. He's married to Marion and they have a baby, but his most significant relationship is definitely with his mate, Kenneth O'Keefe. Before I read the book, I had a quick look at what people say about the Ginger Man, and the Lily Press claims it is simply one of the great comic novels of post-war Europe. And the book covers, featuring skinny blokes with red hair, made me think it would be witty, urbane, and maybe a bit arch. Holy shit, was I sold a pup. I have so much to say about those book covers that I'm going to do a whole thread about them on Twitter. I didn't find this book funny, and I didn't think it was urbane or arch. Not that individual lines aren't funny, because they are, but the whole book, the whole reading experience, wasn't particularly entertaining. But it is a filthy book. It earned its 25-year ban. There is so much ban content that this episode might even be a bit longer than usual. I won't be able to read you all the rude bits, because we'd be here all day, but I'll read out the best of the worst. The very first bit of ban content is in Chapter 2, when O'Keefe says to Dangerfield, All I want is my first piece of arse. The two friends are talking about O'Keefe's permanent state of virginity, and how he's so horny he can barely think. Imagine a conversation between Randy Youngfellas and you can guess the tone of body machismo. Dangerfield tells him that he will get laid in Ireland and O'Keefe says that there's lots of opportunities for, quote, unnatural connections with farm animals, unquote. Pretty niche sexual tastes, I'd imagine. He then talks about how he tried to seduce his cousin in Connemara except that his seduction technique involved grappling with the woman and trying to force her into a ditch. Kind of sounds like sexual assault to me. This chapter sets up the two characters and their obsessions with sex, food and money. These lads are the worst, though at this point in the book, just chapter two, I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. But as Barry pointed out to me, there are disturbing contemporary echoes in their conversation. And you know what, again, just reading it again, there's a line by O'Keefe as well that's absolutely scarily, you know, anticipates a, a quote from Trump. And, and O'Keefe is, is the kind of mid-twenties virgin who's desperate for sex and he doesn't have the confidence to even talk to a woman, you know, um, or not to mind even, you know, build a relationship with one. Uh, and he talks about, oh, I would do this and I would do that. Uh, he said, I can't help it. I'm attracted to beautiful women. And that's a direct line that Trump said in his famous grab them by the pussy speech. You know, Trump says, I can't help it. I'm attracted to beautiful women. Um, and there, there's O'Keefe saying exactly the same line. But again, he's a coward, you know, in every sense of the way behind it. And again, we're, we're back in, in kind of dystopian 2020 territory very, very quickly. As you can imagine, a book about Trump-like men doesn't seem very funny just now. Those conversations between sex-obsessed blokes are moderately funny but the book turns dark very quickly. And I was stunned when Dangerfield first erupts into violence after a screaming row with Marion, his wife. And this is from chapter four. Marion lunged, her slap landing across his jaw. The child began to scream in the nursery. Sebastian up off the table. He drove his fist into Marion's face. She fell backward against the cupboard, dishes crashing to the floor. In tattered underwear, he stood at the nursery door. He kicked his foot through and tore off the lock to open it. 
took the child's pillow from under its head and pressed it hard on the screaming mouth. I'll kill it, God damn it, I'll kill it if it doesn't shut up. Marion behind him, digging her nails into his back. You madman, leave the child alone, I'll get the police. I'll divorce you, you blackguard, coward, coward, coward. Marion clasping the child to her breast. Sobbing, she lay her long English body and child across the bed. The room echoing the hesitations of her wailing voice. Sebastian walked white-faced from the room, slamming the broken door, cutting off the sound of suffering from a guilty heart. He tries to suffocate his own baby. Even by the standards of intimate violence in books, killing infants is pretty extreme. Not to sound trite, but partner beating is unfortunately common in literature. But men murdering their own infants is unusual. Honestly, I felt sick after reading this, and I did not want to read any more. This is where I needed the beverage to steady the nerves. Now, the censors didn't like too much violence, so if the frank conversations about sex hadn't already pissed them off, this would definitely earn the book a prohibition order. And Dangerfield continues to be a shit for the rest of the book. He steals money meant for the family's food and rent, abuses Marion, drinks too much, and lies compulsively to everyone at every opportunity. He refuses to take any responsibility for his family. He is one of the biggest fucking arseholes I've come across in literature. Or, in lit crit terms, he's an anti-hero. It's really, really unsettling. You know, the threats against his wife, Marion, in the book, um, the threats to kill the child who's screaming. Um, and it's really, really unsettling stuff. Um, and the, the sex in the book is used as a weapon. Almost he weaponizes his masculinity and it's toxic masculinity before perhaps it was used or as a concept, really. Um, so he's a terrible character. Um, he's branded as a, this kind of rogue in so many reviews and on jacket blurbs as well. So it's a sense it reflects on how some of that behavior was perhaps not quite accepted, but more tolerated, at least in the times that it, it, it reflects. Uh, and I think John Levy was trying to deliberately pull that out as well and say, look, this does happen. This is part of male Irish drinking culture or Irish culture at the time. But, you know, that type of anti-hero character that Dangerfield is, we he, he's kind of the hyper version of it. You know, even in modern times, the character is everywhere. You know, that's. Don Draper, that's Walter White, that's Tony Soprano, these figures who use um, who they are, you know, even in, in Nucky Thompson in Boardwalk Empire, they use their power and their sexuality to, you know, control those around them. And when that doesn't work for them, they resort to violence and sexual violence. And he, he's that type of early anti-hero that we're not allowed to like. And I think he's actually someone we probably can't like. You know, there are some redeeming features, I think, to some of those other anti-hero characters but it's hard to find anything to like about Dangerfield. It really bothers me that people find this a comic novel. It does have moments of levity, but wallowing in toxic masculinity isn't very funny. But it is reliably and consistently filthy. Almost every page has a sex reference. The sex obsessions of Dangerfield and O'Keefe mean it's full of sex, real or imagined. And the two men are contrasts. Dangerfield is getting his end away regularly, though God knows why. O'Keefe can't get laid by man or woman, girl or boy, no matter how much he tries. And he does try all those options. So there's lots of sex talk from both characters. 
Some of the lines are funny when you read them individually, like this bit between Dangerfield and O'Keefe from Chapter 5. Woke up this morning with an erection that almost touched the ceiling. And they're 20 feet high, Kenneth. There's no denying that is funny. Dangerfield is the narrator, so most of the sex concerns him. But I have one big question about Dangerfield's sex life. Why the fuck would anyone go near him? I nearly died when I read this bit in chapter 6. Sebastian stripping and sitting naked on the edge of the bed, taking white fluff out of the navel and doubling himself, plucking the congealed dirt from between his toes. Sebastian, I wish you'd take a bath. Kills the personality. You were so clean when I first knew you. Given up the cleanliness for a life of the spirit. Preparation for another and better world. Hardly take offence at a little scruffiness. Clean souls, my motto. Take off your nighty. Oh, that was so foul. I got the gawks when I read that. He's manky. Mysteriously... After this conversation, Marion shags him. Not only does Marion shag him, but he gets his end away with three other women. I just can't cope with this bullshit. A broke, lying, cheating, violent, stinking, irresponsible drunk has powerful sex appeal. Yeah, right. There is no way Dunleavy wanted this bloke to be likeable or even tolerable. In some ways, this book actually reminds me of Catch-22 from season one. Parts of that were also very funny, very sharp when read on their own, but the characters were so grotesque that you cannot like them. God, I really hope that Dunleavy was deliberately making a point with this book, or I lose the will to live. I do worry that so many readers haven't seen it this way, because everyone seems to think it's hilarious. There is one admirable woman character in a book of female cardboard cutouts. Dangerfield meets Mary in town, and after a riotous party in a basement, they adjourn to her coal shed. There's a mattress in the coal shed. Perfectly normal. And Sebastian gets more than he bargained for with Mary. Turns out she's horny as hell, so desperate for a shag that Sebastian ends up a bit uncomfortable. I'll read out this part from their encounter in chapter 16. Mary ground her lips down on him, locking her thighs on his knee, forcing him over on his back and knocking over a bottle of stout. Jesus, Mary, I can't get involved. Don't do this to me. There's enough misunderstanding in my life already without a case of illegitimacy. She's trying to force me to submit. I absolutely refuse to be taken by force. The indignity. She's quite mad. Also without any reserves. Stop at nothing. Okay, I know Mary is objectively in the wrong here. It's very bad consent practices. But I can't help enjoying Dangerfield's discomfort. He's such a gobshite to his sexual partners that it feels like a small revenge. I'm sure the text is written so that I root for Mary over Dangerfield. I don't think this is just my personal bias here. I thought the Mary Dangerfield episodes were the funniest, cleverest and most provocative parts of the book because it's more of an equal contest between the characters. There's no doubt she's named Mary for a reason. Dunleavy called the only woman who is frank, open and honest about her sexual pleasure after the Virgin Mary. 
This book was being written as Ireland celebrated a Marian year in 1954, which was a national Holy Mary love-in with extra statues. And every second woman in Ireland at this time was called Mary. It's the every woman name of mid-20th century Ireland. Dunleavy was being fierce bold when he called the nympho girlfriend Mary. Talk about pressing the buttons of conservative Catholic Ireland. Like this is just one of her filthy statements from chapter 16. I've never felt this way before, Sebastian. Purple inside. Do everything to me. All the things. I want you to do everything. I like Mary. She's up for it and not afraid to say it. Chapter 16 is pretty rude if you're looking for just one hedonistic chapter to read. Now that I've convinced you that this sex-saturated text is very rude, I want to explore its crazy history of censorship. From the content, it's not surprising it was banned, but the book was first published by a Parisian pornographic press. Barry told me all about the history of this text and its censorship legacy. You know, for a book or any novel to have the history of that book and novel tells you that there is, you know, in fact, the book has its own history uh, to speaks volumes. Um, it was published. I mean, it can it can hold the title, I think, of being perhaps the only really rightly banned book in Ireland in some to some ways because it's pornographic. It was published as pornography unintentionally, though. That's the thing. And that's what started a decades long legal battle. Uh, between Don Levy and the publisher. Um, it was published initially in Paris as he couldn't get it published in Ireland, couldn't get it published in England. The Olympia Press was a new-ish press in Paris and was publishing a lot of very interesting work, a lot of experimental novels. Um, they were publishing Beckett's novels, like excerpts from Watt and Malloy. Um, so Don Levy, who did want, he did see himself as a, a writer in that sense and wanted to be considered you know, in those circles, um, said, yes, OK, this press can give me a platform. Unknown to him, it ended up in a soft back paperback pub fiction pornographic imprint of the Olympia Press called the Traveller's Compendium um, with a bright lurid green cover um, that would sit on the shelves between their other publications like Beckett and others, uh, quite unassuming. But yes, it, it classified Don Levy as a pornographic author and he was incensed. Um, and he quite famously said when he saw a copy of the book slamming his fist on the cover, he said, if it's the last thing I do, I will avenge this book. Um, and that's what, that's what began many years of a, of a legal battle. In literary terms, Paris often equaled filth. The most controversial books of the 20th century were first published in Paris. For example, Ulysses. And when Britain banned the lesbian novel The Well of Loneliness, it was printed in Paris to satisfy demand and get around the ban. Given how dirty the ginger man was, Dunleavy needed to turn to a Parisian press. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Leaving aside the brief Parisian hiccup, the book quickly became very popular. Dunleavy adapted the novel for the stage and after a run in London, it came to Dublin. Now, there's technically no censorship of the stage in Ireland, but that didn't mean there was no censorship at all. As Barry explains, the biggest, baddest prelate in the land, John Charles McQuaid, the Archbishop of Dublin, had opinions on theatre. So Dunleavy adapted the book for the stage. And this is a really curious loophole in Ireland at the time that while there was strict censorship on movies and books, there was no cent- no official censorship of the theatre, um, even though there was you know, quite heavy monitoring of the stage in Ireland at the time. And again, there's famous incidents like the Pike Theatre and the Rose Tattoo incident in 1957. But when, when, the, day, <coughs> excuse me, when the Ginger Man reached the London stage first in October 59, it went over pretty well. And Brendan Behan had already kind of sown the seeds of Irish theatre in the city at the time. Um, the famous uh, London critics were saying there, there are two plays in London right now through which the winds of genius are blowing. One of them uh, was Behan's play. The other was The Ginger Man. So we see these two kind of body kind of writers, you know, scandalising in the best way possible, you know, the English stage. But by the time, uh, two months later, it would come back to Dublin uh, and to the Olympia Theatre the play was shut down after three performances uh, and that was shut down directly by the, the by the church, by Ar- Archbishop McQuaid. McQuaid was, was an operator of quite astounding ability and he had quite an army of people to do a lot of that heavy lifting for him. So even while the play was on in London and I've been in, in the Archbishop's archives in Dublin and I've seen the theatre files and the censorship files and there's a dossier on the Ginger Man and on a lot of other plays at the time. So these people watching the play in London um, aware that it's going to probably come to Ireland soon and come to Dublin. Um, I mean, this, this is happening all the time. There was there was kind of lay people or, or other clergy sent incognito to the theatres in Dublin to monitor what was being put on stage. Um, and there's a, I think, a multi, multi-page report on the ginger man. Um, so when it reached the Olympia stage, finally, approaches were made to the management at the time, who was Louis Elliman about cuts had to be made for this play if it was to go on. And Dunleavy and the producer, Philip Wiseman, initially just didn't agree. Um, and so the play was a shut down after three performances. Um, and I mean, the thing was, the ginger man was was um, Richard Harris, you know, a really kind of, you know, not quite a famous character as he's known nowadays, but he was already known as a bit of a playboy, a raconteur, um, a sex symbol at the time, you know, in some ways he was the embodiment of, of the ginger man and there couldn't have been perhaps a better danger field to play the role. Um, I mean, he writes to the archbishop on, on the headed letterhead of Jury's Hotel where he was staying. I beg your Lord Grace, you know, reconsider your decision. And this play is not at all as scandalous as you as you may think. Um, so he tried his best and ultimately failed even not quite threatening, but saying that we go to the Vatican if needs be to get this play put on. It didn't quite have to come to that. But the story around this, no matter where the book went, you know, controversy followed. Um, and again, it was the sex in the play that largely shut it down. But also the blasphemy, I think there's elements of Dangerfield, you know, facing down Marion in the play and, you know, kind of advocating crucifixion. You know, he, he said, put in the nails, he kind of threatens her, you know. So it's 
absolutely no doubt that the play would have been uh, that the play would have been shut down. Um, but it's another gr- one of those great moments in Irish cultural history that just are almost too unbelievable to believe. What a story that is! A network of priestly spies and Richard Harris threatening an archbishop with the Vatican. The mad thing about this crazy episode is that it's so unknown. I'd never heard of it until Barry told me about it, even though it seems the textbook example of clericalism in Ireland. There are other theatre censorship stories that get a mention nearly every time, but this one is rarely talked about. How could I not know about this one? I had the exact same experience. I was so surprised as well. I mean, I think it's quite common knowledge, you know, the the, the banning of, you know, O'Casey's and Be- or the pulling of Beckett's works in the Bishop's Bonfire and the Dublin Theatre Festival, the Pike Theatre and the Rose Tattoo. I think they're, they're quite well known, but I couldn't believe that, you know, uh, in any of the texts I found, the Ginger Man and the banning of the play, and the, I mean, the most heavy-handed censorship perhaps of any play in Ireland directly by the church, in modern times and it's really under the radar and i just i wonder does the play itself was it was it its own worst enemy did people say well in this case we couldn't really do much about it you know it was that filthy it was that violent uh, maybe he deserved it you know that kind of thing um but it, you know outside of that you're still seeing the cultural shutdown or at least the cultural monitoring of the country you know by the by the, the catholic church and by the theocracy it was imposing so um it, it was incredible that behind the scenes you saw Archbishop McQuaid's fingerprints all over this, but not publicly at all. It's just if you delve into the records and take the time, um, it's all there. And it's an amazing story to piece back together. So at a deep cultural level, we still feel like the ginger man deserved to be banned. To the contemporary audience, it wasn't surprising it was banned because it was pure filth. And that idea persisted. It was not easy to defend the artistic merits of the Ginger Man play when it was just so nasty. If you want to show that censorship is a ridiculous overreaction, you would not choose the Ginger Man as your best example. The best victims of censorship are plays or books that are completely inoffensive. Because Dunleavy's texts were both offensive and challenging, it was hard to defend them against censorship. I do think that the spectacular rudeness of the book meant that no one complained about its censorship. When the first ban expired in 1968, the censors swiftly banned The Ginger Man again. Now, this didn't happen to all the banned books that were released. As far as I can tell, The Ginger Man was the only re-banned novel. Of course, bans on sex manuals and non-fiction sex books were often renewed, but literature wasn't re-banned. No one protested that a book published in 1955 wasn't legally available in Ireland until 1981. Maybe if it had been less filthy, there would have been complaints. Who knows? Now, a few copies had sneaked in between the bans, and it seems to have been popular, according to Barry's research. The censorship in Ireland lifted in, I think it was 60, was it 68? So it got out in Ireland, so to speak. And apparently from, from what I can find and what I can dig out in various archives and letters, and that is that it sold pretty well in Ireland, I'm told, for a first few months before it was re-banned again. So I think in 68, another ban was issued by the censorship board um, for the later editions that were published. But apparently it was out and on the loose in Ireland, so to speak, for a few months. And apparently it circulated well enough 
I think before that it was read, you know, under the radar, probably by a more literary readership. Um, again, I've seen letters in various archives, letters to people like Seamus de Burke, um, the booksellers in Dublin, and his papers in the National Library. There's, there's people writing to him saying, have you read The Ginger Man? And he said, it's good. It's very interesting. Um, uh, and he says he's other people in the US who are sending copies transatlantic, you know. So you do see it circulating, um, perhaps more initially in that literary readership than generally people going to their local town or county library and getting it, you know, because obviously they couldn't get it. I mean, Dunleavy rumbled on. He, he was allowed permission, as probably most band authors were, he was allowed permission to import copies for personal use. Um, that's a very fine line as to what you can describe as personal. It makes it sound like a drug. You know, it's, it's class A literature, you know, as a drug, um, you know, for your own personal use. And there's letters to the Department of Justice saying he was allowed to import two copies, I think, for personal use. Um, you know, so there you have the Minister for Justice in Ireland signing off on the import of two books for your own personal you know, filthy enjoyment, but enjoyment nonetheless. Uh, but any more than that, and they would have been confiscated at customs. So you you still see the state looking in on readership and and access to books in Ireland, uh, even in the late 60s. So it's, it's really extraordinary. While the Irish readers were restricted to a few clandestine copies, this book was phenomenally successful internationally. It has sold 45 million copies since its publication and has been translated into many languages. I have deeply conflicting emotions about The Ginger Man. I despise Sebastian Dangerfield, and the dark comic satire isn't strong enough for me to get over that. Like Ulysses, it's a modernist novel about Dublin, but Dublin is an irredeemably horrible, dirty, smelly city in this book. It has been years since I read Ulysses, but I remember it as light-hearted and fun. Ulysses isn't an easy read. You need to get into it and let go. But it didn't make me cross. For example, the ending of The Ginger Man pissed me off a lot. Dangerfield ends up in London, with rich friends who indulge him. The wonderful Mary had followed him there, but soon left him because he was an arsehole. Unfortunately, at the very end of the book, she gets back together with him, even after he slaps her across the face. So the novel ends with Dangerfield meditating on how he will control Mary by ending her stage career. The anti-hero rides off into the sunset with the abused, subservient, but sex-mad girlfriend by his side. Mary's brief dominance over Dangerfield seems to be over. I just found this awful. I don't understand how this is satirical. The ginger man might kick out against clerical oppression, but the sexist, violent men who populate the book aren't much of an improvement on repressed Catholics. If you do want to read it for the highlights, I'd suggest reading until chapter four and the attempted baby murder bit, then skip to Mary giving Dangerfield head in the coal shed in chapter 16. Read on from there to the end and you get what I think is the best version of it. What I'm trying to say is this is not a bad book. It has lots going for it. But I think it's hard to enjoy it in a world of Trump, incels and overindulged straight white men lashing out. Maybe it read better when the chief focus of its satire, the Catholic Church, was an omnipresent, powerful institution. When writing this, Dunleavy would never have imagined a government lifting a quarantine where pennies was open before the church. 
Next time someone says Ireland is a Catholic country, remember just how little influence the contemporary Archbishop of Dublin had over the government. He couldn't even get his own churches open, not to mind shutting down plays. And now it's time for a special extended version of Censorship Bingo. There is so much smut in The Ginger Man that the bingo is a comprehensive guide to the rude bits. Okay, on the first line, breasts, yes, obviously. Bestiality, yes, when O'Keefe talks about unnatural connections with animals, that's an explicit reference to bestiality. Next box is sex work. There are a good few references to sex work. Dangerfield talks about trying to pick up sex workers in chapter 4, and hilariously they don't want to talk to him about sex. Very Irish. Racism. There's a smattering of references to black men sleeping with Irish girls, and naturally Dangerfield is offended that the women would choose black men over his own dubious smelly charms. Drugs? No, no drugs. Politics. There's no direct politics, though the swipes of the church are frequent, but I don't think that's sufficient to tick that box. Swearing, yes, there is occasional cursing. Infidelity, of course. Dangerfield, who's married, sleeps around, as do others of his male married friends. Crime, well, obviously there's the attempted murder of an infant, but also attempts by O'Keefe to have sexual relationships with underage girls and boys. Although it's in France, so maybe that's excused as being Parisian filth. Genitalia. There are too many penis references of varying degrees of explicitness to mention. Although I did giggle when Mary talked about Dangerfield's dong in chapter 30. Abortion. No mention at all. No orgies. Sexual assault. The attempted rape of the cousin in Connemara in the ditch ticks this box. Extramarital pregnancy. This is a subplot around Miss Frost, Dangerfield's lodger, who reveals she has been pregnant outside of marriage previously. She was sent to a convent for penance and has given up the baby. Masturbation. There's lots of wanking. There's a memorable description of O'Keefe's student rooms as smelling of rancid butter and sperm. Just revolting. Sex toys, no sex aids, sorry. No feminism, obviously. Divorce, apart from when Marion says she wants to divorce Dangerfield, it's never mentioned. Dangerfield never wants to divorce his wife, even though he wants to get rid of her very badly. He instead fantasizes about her and the baby dying so that he can be free of them. Just charming. Contraception. Throughout the book, there are references to condoms, the urgent necessity of acquiring them, and the horrible expense of children. And I'll just read out this bit from chapter 14, when Dangerfield first arrives in Ireland from America and goes looking to buy contraceptives. I went into chemists for those things when I first came to Ireland. I said, may I have a dozen? The man said to me, how dare you ask for such a thing? And he hid behind the counter till I left. Naturally, I thought he was mad. I went further up the street. Man with a great grin, how do and what not. I let me teeth out for a second. I noticed his were a little black. I put it to him pleasantly, asking for the American tips if possible. I saw his face go down, slouch of the jaw, hands twitch and a bottle break on the floor. The woman behind me indignantly swept out of the shop. The man in a hoarse whisper said he didn't deal in things like that. 
also to please go away because the priests would put him out of business. I thought the gentleman must have something against American tips, which I prefer. I entered another shop and bought a bar of imperial leather for the class standing that was in it. Quietly, I put it to him for half a dozen with English tips. I heard this man utter a low prayer, Sweet Mother of Jesus, save us from the licentious. He then blessed himself and opened the door for me to leave. I left, thinking Ireland is a most peculiar country. That ridiculous passage is really very funny. But to return to the bingo card. Menstruation. No, there's not a word about women's bodies in that sense. Blasphemy. He does compare himself to Christ a few times, and that's definitely offensive to devout Christians. And the Sarki comments about the church would be seen as blasphemous, since the church is God's representative on earth. Oral sex. See chapter 16 in the coal shed. Graphic violence. I was conflicted on this. The violence is explosive and frightening, but it's not wallowing in gore for pages upon pages. But the violence is such an important feature of Dangerfield's character, so I think I will tick this box. LGBTQ+, there's a fair few references to gay and lesbian sexual relationships. There's a lesbian artist in chapter 22 who only likes to paint women, unsurprisingly. And O'Keefe and Dangerfield talk about their brief encounters with the underground gay sex scene earlier on in the book. The bingo results for The Ginger Man are an astonishing 16 out of 25. This beats Catch-22 from season 1, which scored 13 out of 25. Coincidentally, or not, both books are stuffed with horrible men abusing women. But my bingo card was inadequate in the face of Dunleavy's filth. I had no squares for anal sex or indecent exposure. Chapter 10 was cut from some editions because it's about Dangerfield travelling through Dublin with his dick hanging out. And the anal sex is in chapter 22, which is a pretty filthy chapter all round. No wonder the stage adaptation offended Archbishop McQuaid. It probably shocked even those who consider themselves broad-minded. And although this book is a huge international bestseller, it isn't part of the popular canon of Irish literature. It's not really taught that often or discussed. Maybe a Randy Mary panting for sex in a coal shed is still too much for us. So the next episode will be a little different. I'll be discussing Mari Stopes's Married Love, which was published in 1918, but wasn't banned in Ireland until 1930. It has the dubious honour of being on the first banned list compiled by the censors. Stopes's book is the first non-literary work I've read so far, it's not a novel, but a sex manual, a how-to-do-it-better guide for the middle classes. I can't wait to see what sort of advice Stopes gave and how it compares to contemporary understandings of sex. So I'm moving from pure filth in The Ginger Man to a guide to bettering your filth by Stopes. I'm expecting it to tick a fair few bingo boxes, even if the tone will not compare to The Ginger Man. There will be impure thoughts either way, but that's how I like it. Until then, keep reading the banned books and keep thinking dirty thoughts. Mm-hmm.